you got to put more into the pot than you take out. You got to contribute more. And I got to be able to, and I want to contribute more so that should you ever have an off day, you're allowed to. I got you covered. And I need you to contribute more to the pot so that if I ever have an off day, you got me covered. And if we all have that mindset, then there will always be an abundance to take care of other people. Welcome to In the Thick of It. I'm your host, Scott Hallra. In this episode of In the Thick of It, I have a fascinating conversation with Chris Matthew, Chief Growth Officer of Sniffle, an AI-powered telehealth platform. Chris shares his long, winding road to entrepreneurship and eventual success with Sniffle. From early failures to finding the right product market fit, Chris offers an inside glimpse into the constant learning and resilience required of startup founders. He also discusses Sniffle's mission to transform healthcare by using technology to improve doctor-patient relationships, as well as some key features that set their platform apart. Keep listening for hard-won lessons on perseverance from Chris's journey of repeated setbacks and triumphs in building a healthcare tech company. Welcome to another episode of In the Thick of It. I'm very excited to have Chris Matthew Chief Growth Officer with Sniffle here. Chris, thanks so much for coming to the studio today. Thrilled to be here. Thanks for having me. So we've actually got a number of mutual connections and funny how we got connected not all that long, reconnected, I should say, not all that long ago. We actually worked together someplace a long time ago. So it's amazing how, you know, paths cross and anyway, so good to reconnect and good to have you here. It's Fantastic to reconnect with you too. It never ceases to amaze me how huge and small the world can be at the same time. Without a doubt. Let's start with this. Where'd you grow up? I was born in Dallas. My parents are immigrants from South India. So my brothers and I are first generation born here, born in Dallas. And then uh, my parents moved us to Plano, chasing the, the great education system. And so I grew up in Plano from third grade on. And my mom still lives in the same house that we grew up in. Had a, a great childhood. I feel fortunate that I had the opportunity to travel as much as I did, especially back to India. My, my mom was born and raised in Malaysia, but her parents were South Indians. So I had lots of family in India, still have a majority of my family in India, and then family in Malaysia. So being able to, as a young person, travel internationally and see things in India and see things in Malaysia and then come back here, realized like just what a lottery winner of life, my family and I were gifted with my parents making the sacrifices they did for us. No doubt. So being that you're first generation born here and your parents came from Southeast Asia, what was your house like growing up? Was it a more traditional Indian type upbringing or was it a more American upbringing or was it kind of a, a mesh of the two? Yeah, it was one foot in two boats. It was a dual thing. We were very involved in the Indian community, which it's not like it is now here throughout the U.S., but especially here in North Texas. There were definitely Indian families, but 50 years ago, it wasn't quite like this. So there was a very strong connection in our culture, and I'm sure lots of people do this too, but everyone is your aunt or uncle. Everyone's auntie and everyone's uncle. So as a kid, I just grew up being, you know, I knew they weren't technically my aunt and uncles, but... I had thousands of aunts and uncles. So we were very involved in the Indian community and our church, St. Mary's Indian Church was was a big, big part of our lives. But we were also, my dad was a huge sports fan. My brothers and I were 
very involved in sports. So that brought us in both worlds. And so it was, my parents wanted us to absolutely assimilate and be aware and take every advantage we could growing up in Plano. But we also, like then we went back to India for lots of summers. I mean, I probably have traveled back to see my family 20 times in my life, which doesn't sound like a whole lot, but it, when you go for a month or six weeks at a time, it's, it's a pretty significant amount of time. And considering the, the journey that it takes to get there, it's not the sort of thing that you can just go do every other month. No. Although the shortest time I've been in India is three days. That's not enough to get over the jet lag. And the reality is I wasn't jet lagged. By the time I came back, it was like I just traveled around the world fast enough that I, my body didn't really adjust to anything one way or the other. I went back for my grandfather's funeral, landed, was there for a few days, got on a plane and came back. And it was a strange feeling to not be exhausted because I just fell right back into my routine. Imagine for something like that, too. There's a lot of adrenaline and, and yeah, just yeah. Yeah. keeps you going. Yeah, for sure. You mentioned sports. Were you an athlete as a kid? Not really. Not a good athlete. Played football, played baseball, but I grew just under six inches and lost 70 pounds my senior year of high school. So I was, I was short and round. And then I just got tired of being everyone. Well, <laughs> different motivations that I don't necessarily need to get into here, but like, it's like, hey, I'm going to do something about this. And then I suddenly just started becoming obsessed with going to work out. And then I somehow grew. And it's very strange. My brothers and I were all six foot and above. I'm the tallest of the, all of them. That's officially on the record. I'm the tallest. Documented here. Thank you. Scott is the witness. So I went through that growth spurt, but it was after high school and in college, I loved playing rec ball and stuff like that, but that was it. What kind of student were you? Not a great student. So Scott, I'm, I'm all about relationships and I have been from really early on in my life. And I don't know exactly where that got instilled, but I just, I love people. I love, I've always loved people. I've always loved connecting with people. So my focus was being involved at A&M and I was involved in lots of things, right? I was all over student government stuff, all over different organizations and schoolwork wasn't really my priority, but building relationships with my professors was. So on that first day of every class, when you got the syllabus and they actually, you know, hey, my office hours are this, that's what I wrote down. And then I would go and I would visit during office hours. Forget the book list, forget the test dates. Yeah. Do you have questions about the curriculum? Uh, not, not really, professor. Just curious, like, how'd you get into this? Why? Of all the places you could be teaching, why college station? How'd you pick this path? And I learned incredible things. And some people had really great stories and other people's stories were really mundane. They were just like, I don't know. I honestly don't know how I got here. But I learned from some of those things like, okay, I want to be a little more intentional. I don't want to just have things happen to me. I want to try to pursue things. But I did that for a long time. I will tell you that a buddy of mine and I decided to skip finals one year. Always a great idea. I just felt like I could do it. I had a, a few classes that I knew that the professors were going to, you know, I turned in papers early and it was fine. But I had a couple of professors that I visited often. And one, I was like, I have an opportunity to have a life enriching experience. I just want your opinion on what do you, what should I do? I'm like, well, what is it? Well, I have tickets to Jazz Fest. <laughs> in New Orleans? In New Orleans. 
And they're like, so you're going to skip finals to go to a jazz fest. Yeah, but I've never been to New Orleans either. And it's a like it's an international melting pot, and there's people <laughs> from all around the world, and the food, and and you know the way to really learn about that. And jazz is a part of like American history. So what do you think? I think that you should probably experience that. I was like, okay, I think you're right. And I still remember the first. I did this two years in a row. <laughs> I went to Jazz Fest twice using this same process, but never been to New Orleans the second time. No, the second time I had gone and I recapped the life enriching experience I had had. So we weren't embellishing that no. you needed. Okay. It was, you know, the second year I, you know, was like, Hey, I want your blessing to skip finals and go to jazz fest was here's what I would have done differently. Here's what I would have liked to have tried to experience and pursue and learn more about. You should do that. When you come back, I want to hear all about it. You got it. And they just give you a zero for the final or they just didn't calculate it again. I wasn't here for a four Oh and they knew that like, I'm not asking for an a right now. I might have a B maybe less than that, but I'm cool with that. If you're cool with that, I'm not planning on being an accountant, I'm not planning on being in finance. Sure. Would love this opportunity, man. If you're telling me you got to skip the finals in accounting and finance, oh my gosh, managerial and financial accounting passing those two classes with C's mind you, I was not a 4.0 student either, but I took it very seriously. Those classes kicked my tail. Passing those two classes with a C were among the top 10 happiest days of my life. And you got to just skip out. I applaud you. I applaud you. I knew enough to know that the worst that would happen is you're going to give me a failing grade, which is not the right thing for the oldest immigrant parents who sacrificed everything to come here and pursue this American dream. And I'm somewhat thumbing my nose at it by not taking it as seriously. But my skill set was never going to be in being a physician. It was never going to be in being a, a really technical. That just wasn't, that's not who I am. When I was in sixth grade, I would go to the Albertson's grocery store. I'd buy candy for 10 cents. I'd sell it for a quarter at school or five for a dollar because everyone loved a bonus, right? And slinging candy was my thing. Sales and marketing from day one. From day one. And so I just like, that was always, and my family back in India, they're all entrepreneurs. They're all business people. So my dad was like, please just go get a big corporate job. It's part of why I joined when, when, when we worked together, go work for a big outfit, go just get a job and be an employee somewhere. And I did that and just, didn't feel right. It's just not the right fit for me. So of all the startups that I had, I had a lot of crash and burns. And my dad constantly was like, this is not why we came here for you to tinker. But I'd like to believe that he'd be really proud of, of the path where it's led me. We'll get to where it's led you in, in a bit. Going back to your grades and you knew what you were cut out for and what you weren't cut out for early on. And that's a great thing. A while back, I was in a parking lot. And there was a Ferrari parked in the lot and the license plate said 2.0 GPA. And maybe the guy's initials were GPA and maybe this was the second Ferrari's had. But my interpretation of that was, guess what? I'm driving a Ferrari and I had a 2.0 GPA in school. If I can do it, you can too. Yeah. I do think that there's a tremendous value in education, but I think it's more about what you can do than what the transcript says. 
I 100% agree. And I really think this is important. I'm not here to dismiss education. I think education is really important. I was a good student in high school, but I went, you know, I focused. Uh, did you have DECA in high school? That rings a bell, but I, I, I don't. So it was a marketing club and a marketing organization. I won the state championship in Texas two years in a row, my junior and sophomore year. I loved the things that I loved, I got really into. I won a, an outstanding chemistry student of the entire Plano ISD my sophomore year of high school, but I loved my teacher. I had a really strong connection with her, and she found a way to make chemistry something more than what I thought it was possible. So there are things that I really got into, but there are other things that I just didn't. I do think a well-rounded education is really important. I definitely want my boys to be able to have a rich education, but I think that it's not just textbooks and tests. There's lots of different ways to learn in the world, and, and I, I'm here for that. Did you know early on what you wanted to be? No. Did your parents have expectations? I mean, you, you talked about your dad saying, go get a big corporate job. Yeah. Expectations were to hopefully join a big corporate America and climb the ranks and get the gold watch and get the stability. That was a big thing coming from where they came from to the life we were living. My dad worked a job that he didn't love, but he, he did for us. My mom worked a job that was really hard and she excelled at it. But they did that to provide for us. So it was like, what we all want for all of our kids is to go further than what we've done, right? For them, it's a pretty monumental step to come from where they came from to the life we were living in Plano, Texas, which is pretty significant. Go get a corporate job and, and find that stability and enjoy that cushion of a company that gives you a 401k. Like those are things like, it's like, forget about a startup. Like, they don't match your 401k in a startup. I'm like, well, yeah. They don't pay you anything in a startup unless you make money. So there weren't expectations. It was just, uh, I got into healthcare recruiting. The story behind it, a lot of healthcare recruiting agencies is two people rise to the top and they turn their guns and say, hey, we're going to go start our own gang. And that just happens every single time. And unfortunately, everyone sues everyone and as opposed to just saying like, okay, go start your own. And we did that. So sure, we understand that you're going to go do that. And they sued us, and I always hoped that people would break that cycle, but they didn't. But I, I worked for a, a physician staffing agency, and then— And you were there for quite a while. The first agency, I was there for 18 months, and then two senior vice presidents said, we're leaving to start our own. Who's coming with me? And they called and recruited me, and I was like, I'm in. Jerry Maguire like, moment. Yeah, I'm in. Like, I'm here for the gamble. Let's risk it. I, have a, I had a very high risk tolerance because back then it was just me. I had a truck, yeah, I had me, I had everything I could, I really needed to, for my life. I could fit in the back of my car and that was all I needed. So I moved to Oklahoma. We had a series of startups that crashed and burned. I moved to Wichita, tried one more, crashed and burned, did not have a favorable experience in Wichita. <laughs> I've shared this before. I moved into my apartment complex. Scott, I think it was two days later, the worst ice storm that had hit Wichita in two decades hit. I'm from here. Right. Genetically, I'm from South India. So like, I'm not here for any of this ice storm action and I don't know how to drive in the, in the ice. So I'm just like, okay, well, I'll just be hunkered down in my apartment a day after the ice storm hits, the entire complex loses power. So I pack a bag and I walk a couple miles to a Howard Johnson, a Hojo. Those don't exist anymore. I don't think I stay in a Hojo for three days. There's a Sonic nearby. I'm eating Sonic two to three times a day. 
and just questioning my entire existence of like, what did I do, karma? How did I offend you so bad to be in this situation right now? At any point, were you thinking, maybe I should have listened to my dad? I was pretty stubborn back then that I was like, no, no. Partially, probably like, I will prove him to him and to them that I'm going to make this work. I didn't make that work. Again, I lasted in Wichita about six months. Just wasn't the right fit for me. Came back here. And you're single at this time. Single. And so can risk anything I need to for me. And you're mid to late 20s at this point? Mid 20s. Come back here. Only place I, I'm living in Plano. The only place I can afford office space is downtown Salina. So I'm driving to downtown Salina, working on the town square. Had two more startup ideas. They didn't pan out, crashed and burned. And then that's when we worked together at MIS Group. I was there for a little while, realized this isn't the right fit for me. I, I can't contribute. One of the things I really, that matters to me is I want to be a contributor. I don't want things just passed around. I want to be able to earn this. I want to, something that we talk about a lot, Sniffle and, and Valiant Digital. You got to put more into the pot than you take out. You got to contribute more. So, and I got to be able to, and I want to contribute more so that should you ever have an off day, you're allowed to. I got you covered. And I need you to contribute more to the pot so that if I ever have an off day, you got me covered. And if we all have that mindset, then there will always be an abundance to take care of other people. And so being a contributor is a big thing for me. I want to make an impact. That fuels me in a big way. Those entities didn't work out, just wasn't the right fit. My former business partner called and said, I got some funding. Let's try this one more time. Remember this idea that we came up with? And I was like, yeah, I do. Is the funding real? Yes, it is. Okay, let's give it a go. And I came aboard to that organization. It was four of us. We grew it to just under 50. The original folks that were involved all left to pursue other things, but I stayed there and helped to lead the organization for about 13 years and loved it. Loved it. I found my lane and it was great. Was that in line? Yeah. So you took on the COO role there at some point. I did. Knowing your personality though, like operations, that just doesn't seem like you. It's not, but it's a skill set to learn. What I love doing is engaging people. I love talking with people. I love learning what your problems are and then figuring out the solutions that we might be able to apply to them and how to get you there faster. That juices me up. But learning other elements of the business, front of house, back of house, working with our IT team, making sure the development and everything was all in sync and recognizing all of the businesses interdependent on each other. And we've all got to have trust and collaboration and connection for all of those things to come together. And it was a really great learning experience. The owners of the company, unfortunately, we just, we fell out of alignment. I'm grateful for the time that we had there because we did a lot. We achieved a lot in an industry that had a, what I believe is a, a stained reputation. We did a really good job and I'm proud of the work that we did. And I'm really thankful for a lot of the great people I got to work with and work alongside and to help lead along the way. And it was phenomenal. I think you said you were there for 12 years, right? 13. 13. Okay. I think back to those early positions where it was startup after startup and it, and it didn't work. It didn't work. It didn't work. What was the big difference there that made that one work? People. The initial group of, in this case, this initial group of guys that were there 
we had this kind of band of brothers mentality. And if you were going to stick around till nine o'clock on a Thursday night, I'm sticking around till nine o'clock on a Thursday night. If you've got something that's really pressing, well, that your issue just became my issue and I'm let's go solve this. And that mindset just was really exhilarating for us. Also, we were applying a new solution to a very commoditized industry. And a lot of people that were like, that's never going to work. That's never going to happen. Oh, okay, great. You've got that I'll show you mentality. I do have that. My children have some of that too. So I'm sorry to say I passed some of that down to them, but I think it's okay. Like in balance, it can be a really strong fuel source. And so, yeah, this was, this was really good. We also, we were prepared. We had a really strong work ethic and then we were lucky. I mean, there's, there's some luck factor that comes into this too. I remember one of the things that I used to teach and got coached, but then would, would teach people as well as in the beginning of my career, I was a phone jockey. So it was just, you're smiling and dialing. If the minimum was a hundred calls, I'm making 150 because that's how it's going to be. And that's what has to be done to be able to get ahead. Cool. Whether it's your 10th call or your hundredth call, it deserves the same level of energy and enthusiasm and professionalism because you have no idea who's going about to pick up the phone. And there'd be so many people that once they get to that 80th call, they're like, Hey, Scott, how you doing? I'm just reaching out. Um, don't reach out to me. I don't know who you are. Random person. Right. And that energy comes through the phone. And so one of the things I've been, I feel fortunate is hardwired in me. I've got an incredible amount of enthusiasm and excitement about things that I get passionate about. And I can tap into that pretty much in a never-ending source. That allows me to really fuel me forward. And we had that. And I got to do that. And so when I was making those calls and people were interested and curious, that was like, that's my open window. right? Because if you're curious, then we can have a, an open conversation. And that was something I think that I was able to really establish for myself during that time frame. That not that I wasn't enthusiastic and excited and curious about my other solutions, but the other solutions were just repackaging of the same solutions that were already in the marketplace. At Inline, what they did during that time was a revolutionary new approach, a completely different approach to physician staffing and healthcare staffing, which made it really easy for me to want to get behind and, and lean in on. Something I, I need to get this into every interview, but I'm thinking about your story do you consider yourself a patient person? And here's why I ask. I think that a lot of entrepreneurs, and you talked about being a risk taker, a lot of risk takers, I think, are they want to go. They're not very patient. But I also hear your story, and even as we kind of prepped for this, just kind of knowing your long-term outlook, you seem like a very patient person. Where would you put yourself on that spectrum? Being a father definitely builds lots of patience. What I would say is that what I have maybe more than patience is I have a lot of resilience. That is definitely connected to my ability to be patient is to know, okay, that didn't work. We'll try the next one. That didn't work. We'll try the next one. And to be able to, what I was saying earlier, like every swing that you take deserves your full commitment. Don't go up there and just do a half swing because then what, what, are you, what are you trying to do? So if you're going to give your full swing on every every at bat, well, then you just have to be resilient. And with that, you kind of have to be patient. 
because you don't know when the right pitch is coming. And that's, I guess, yeah, I'm a pretty patient person. Sometimes that doesn't always translate, right? There's a lot of times where I, I want things to move faster. I need things to move faster, but I can't control lots of things. What I can't control is my attitude, my mindset, the energy I bring to the table, to the room, and those things I do try to, I think, balance with, with a good amount of patience. What did you go on to do after InLine? So I went radical, different way. I went and joined a 40,000-person global insurance company. Total opposite pendulum swing 50 there. employees to 40,000, yeah. Global carrier. So my childhood best friend worked at Sun Life, phenomenal organization there in the ancillary employee benefit space, life, disability, dental vision, things like that. And for 10 years, he'd been saying like, this is a gem of an industry. And if you could bring your thinking pattern and your resilience to this role, this could be a lot of fun. So I went and had a conversation with uh, his boss and, and eventually my boss. My first conversation, Scott, with him, the first interview, it was four hours. Wow. Yeah. But it didn't feel like it. It felt like a 45-minute conversation. I was so interested and so intrigued and in hearing him talk about all the problems and all the issues and all the challenges. And I was like, problem, 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 opportunity, 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 and was just really curious. My second interview with him was three plus hours. After that, I was like, okay, at this point, man, I've, I've you know me almost as well as my wife and, and my best friend now. So I met with his boss. He flew in town from California and he was like, I've heard about these epic interviews of yours. This isn't going to be like that. I'm like, cool. Two and a half hours later, I'm like, what is it about you all that I ask questions and they just start going? But it was really great for me to hear this consistent, there needs to be a new solution mindset that is applied to employee benefits. And my director was fully on board with saying, I'll back you. If you want to go out there and do this a different way, if you want to approach this a different way, I'll back you. So I'm like, okay. Let's go pick a fight with the industry. Let's go change employee benefits. I'll show you that, yes, we can. And the childhood dream is I get to work with my, my best friends in sixth grade and actually partner on projects together and we're working professionally. And it was phenomenal. And Sun Life was an amazing employer for a huge organization, for their ability to still reach out and give an employee the, the feeling of a personal touch. I'd never experienced anything like that. I joined September of 2019. I was in a training program until February 2020, which was incredible. I was just like, how you guys are really giving me this much time to study and to learn, which was so empowering. Again, I'm, from my previous days of not being a great student, being able to say, like, be the subject matter expert. I learned over time, you know, I've learned you need to own all of it if you're going to go out there and sell it. So learning that process and, and benefits is complicated. It's more complicated than a lot of people think. So I finished training, I think it was third week of February. And they're like, okay, you're released. Get out there. Like, I'm going to go change the world. And then on March 12th, they sent an email and said, go home. And don't ever leave your house. And so starting in a brand new industry, Scott, knowing no one, having zero relational currency, 
and the whole world just shifted to Zoom meetings, it was really a difficult year. I imagine so. And you seem like the kind of person who doesn't do well sitting still in your house with the door shut. You seem like you need to get out and and get face-to-face, that relational aspect. How did you fight through that? You have to adapt. So first of all, yes, you're right. I'm an extrovert in every sense of the word. At the end of a long day, I want to be surrounded by people. After I've used all my words, that's how I go recharge. So that was a real challenge. And I'd never worked from home before. I'd always had an office. But it with it came some real advantages. Right? I used to say, as opposed to hitting the tollway, I'd hit the hallway, and then I'd be at my office. And so right down the hallways, I'd never had a home office. I set, set one up. I closed the door. I was able to create that barrier when the door closes you know, a switch takes place and I'm now in, you know, Chris work mode and would do these things, but it's also really nice to be at home. And if the boys needed anything, they could, they could come in there and they, you know, I had a standing desk and they'd be on the floor coloring or reading a book. And it's like, this is kind of cool that I get to do both of these things at the same time. And early on, you remember like everyone had grace for this whole new thing that we were all trying to figure out how to adjust to. Trying to be, my oldest boy was doing kindergarten at home. That was really challenging for lots of reasons, for him, for me, my wife, for how we unfortunately kind of neglected our our youngest because like, okay, we got to get him somehow engaged in an iPad to learn kindergarten and I need to get on a call and hey, young one, here's a toy just sit in the corner and and entertain yourself. I mean, it was, we did the best we can, but I adapted to it. And I think, you know, there was some, a lot of good stuff that came out of it. I do go back and do, I go into an office now every day. I prefer that. I love that. You know, obviously we've gotten through the pandemic and the boys are much older and don't need um, me there all the time, but I really do appreciate the flexibility of both. And I understand why some people really love to work at home now. When I first started working from home, probably, I don't know, 12 years ago, I remember thinking, I never want to go back into an office ever. And at the time, we only had one kid. And as we had more kids, we have have three kids now. Working from home, it just became harder and harder. And there were distractions. It wasn't like, I need to go, I'm going to go binge Netflix instead of working. It was like the kids are fighting over something or, or whatever. And, and when we got our business off the ground and and started hiring and and moved out of the house, I can remember driving home from my very first day in our first office. And I just felt this sense of relief. And for me, I have a really hard time shutting down mentally. Even if I'm not at the office, even if I'm not in front of the computer, I have a really hard time shutting down mentally. And I realized that I needed a physical separation between work and home. And so I'm with you on enjoying being in the office. Yeah. I love being in the office. I like the drive to work. It gives me a chance to listen to whether it's going to be my playlist or a book or a podcast that I'm enjoying that prepares me for the day I'm about to walk into. On my drive home, I can either take care of a few calls. I try to do a thing where I, I just, people that I've loved in my life, I try to check in on try once a week to reach out to someone I haven't talked to in a long time just to see how they're doing and learn what's going on in their world. But 
that separation is really helpful to transition as I come back home. Now, on the flip side, I will say there were some really cool things that happened, and I'm sure you experienced it too, by being at home. Like, for example, seeing my youngest who had training wheels on his bike, and he came into my office, he's like, hey, take the training wheels off. I'm like, I don't have time to teach you how to ride a bike right now, but we will. And then I'm on a call with my boss. I'm looking out the front window, and there is my boy riding a bicycle without training wheels immediately. And so I'm like, I have to get off this phone call. I don't know what's happening right now. I run outside. My wife took the training wheels off. And I'm like, what are you doing? He said, trust him. And we had one of those balance bikes. So he understood the balance part of it. And so I just jumped on the bike and started riding. And it was so cool to see him feel like I'm flying. He's flying. He's a superhero at this point. I'm so happy that I got to be there to see that. And those are those were definitely some of the gems of when you're able to be at home. There are things that you just you could easily miss. And I'm so like that is a memory I have locked. His face, his confidence. Trust me, I can do this. Okay, I believe you. You can. That's awesome. That's something you'll never forget. Totally. That's a story you'll tell at his wedding. Yeah. That's awesome. I want to go back to something you said about Sun Life. You said 40,000 people global, and yet they made it, I don't think you used the word personal, but you didn't feel like a number. You didn't feel like you were lost in this you know, massive, massive organization. What did they do that created that feeling? Before the pandemic, when there used to be in-person meetings, they'd bring all the salespeople to it's a dual headquartered company, Boston and Kansas City. So we come together and Kansas City was where I went and put everyone up for three days and you have a really, you have a great time, but you're also, you're learning a lot. That investment on that scale, I'd never seen anything like that again, but my scale was skewed because I'd only been a part of small startups, but seeing what you're bringing 200 people from across the country, putting them up at a nice hotel, we have content being consumed all day long and then incredible activities and interactions and collaboration and fellowship in every evening. Wow, what an investment in your people so that they can come together and, and really feel like they're a part of a team and a unit. And here are another 199 people that know exactly what you're going through and how hard this is. In the employee benefits world, you are the best of the best if you have a 94% losing ratio. You are the top, the tip of the spear if you win 6% of the time. So if a baseball player hits six out of 100 pitches or at-bats. That's right. Wow. They're Hall of Fame in the employee benefit space. That's how challenging the industry was. I was the mayor of Loserville. You know, I had a 3 to 4% closing rate. Super frustrating. But an amazing situation to be together with the only other 199 people that knew exactly what that feels like and then could be a fuel source for one another to say, okay, how do we get past this? How do we overcome? How do we adapt? What can we do to approach this differently? And there were a lot of the really successful guys that would be willing to share those things. And I'm, I'm not above doing anything in a role. Um, I'm not above learning from anyone. And so if my genuine curiosity to learn from people, I was fortunate that people would say, okay, yeah, I'll take you under my wing and I'll share with you how I do what I do. 
and I, how I got to 5% of a closing ratio, which still is, I know it sounds crazy, but if you can have the endurance and the tolerance for pain and suffering in that industry, you can do really well financially, which is the only reason why anyone is in that industry because the hazard pay is that extreme. So I did that for three and a half years. Ultimately, once I realized I can't change this industry, I would bring what I am biased, obviously. I would bring solutions to some broker partners that would be a better benefit for the employees, would save the employer a significant amount of money and put them in the position of being the authority of, look at what I just brought you. You can be the hero. You're going to be the hero, the broker, my client. That's a triple win. And more times than not, I'd have people say, good idea, burn it. Don't ever let me see that again. What are you talking about? This is a triple win. We just did something incredibly powerful for the employer and the employees. Yeah, but I'm going to take a huge hit on my commission. If I give them a cheaper solution, then my 20% of that cheaper solution is less money for me. Not going to work. And ultimately, I think you, you definitely know this about me now, but I'm just not a transactional person. I don't want to be in a transactional world to the best that I can control that. And so ultimately when I realized it's just not the right fit and, and it's time for me to make a change, as much as Sun Life was able to make it personal with things like that and through a lot of the response of the Black Lives Matter movements that were taking place and the DEI initiatives, it was great to see a huge organization trying to do something proactive to bring people together, to have difficult conversations, to do things, to say, how do we... How do we address this? How do we make an impact in our local community? And I applauded that. They, Sun Life sponsored me to get into a McKinsey program, which is really amazing. And to learn from people at that level, again, <laughs> my AM stories don't sound like I, I love to learn, but I do, especially when I learn from people that are really brilliant and passionate about what they're doing. And I can see where it could be applicable in, in this world that I live in now. So Sun Life did lots of those things. And then just along the way, like, little things of surprise and delight to, to get something in the mail that it seems silly, but like a new pullover, a new backpack, a new grilling toolkit, right? Out of the blue with just saying, thanks for everything you do. Those little things was just, for me, I'd not experienced that, especially when you think about, you know, it wasn't some hand-me-down backpack. When you send out top of the line North Face backpacks to how many thousands of people across the country, it's not a small investment. It's not a small investment, but it, it demonstrates where you put your priorities, which, you know, I continue to be impressed by Sun Life and will always remember those days fondly for lots of reasons, but also taught me a lot. It also positioned me perfectly for this new role that I'm in and what I'm doing now at Sniffle. For those who don't know, can you just talk a little bit about McKenzie? Yeah, it's, I don't know if you could say top three, top four, definitely top five consulting firm in the world. In the world, And these are high-level consultants. These are high-level thinkers. They go and they get to recruit the top 1% of the top 1%, right? So at A&M, the fellows program at the business school, if McKinsey, I mean, were you in the fellows program? I was. Were you? I was not. Come on. I didn't pay enough attention to that. They bill that as the top 1%. I was definitely not the top 1%. That was a very subjective 1%. Okay. But, but did McKenzie come on campus to do recruiting? McKenzie, Bain, BCG, yeah. Boston Consulting Group. Yeah, they all came on. 
and they're looking to cherry pick the very best of the best. And, and then those people get put into hyper acceleration learning studios and modules and situations to fast track their ability to synthesize challenges and problems and look for solutions. It was a three month program, but I left Sun Life about six weeks into the McKinsey program. My brilliant wife was just ultimately like, at the end of this, it's still going to be a transactional world that you work in. So your wife actually encouraged you to make a change. Yeah. All right. One of the things I was thinking about a minute ago, you came into this with so much energy and enthusiasm and we'll take on the world and I'll show you. You don't like to take no, you don't do defeat well. Like, did you feel defeated? Oh, yeah. I mean, I will tell you, like, something I try to practice, radical transparency. There were times where, like, I was personally hurt. I put everything into trying to change this transactional mindset, trying to show up for people in a really meaningful way and to go big for people. And for it not to work was really painful. I'll tell you, Scott, so I, part of my territory was Oklahoma City. On not one occasion, but on two occasions, I had meetings booked in Oklahoma City where people canceled on me, knowing that I'm driving from Dallas to have this meeting. And they're like, something came up. I get life happens, but there's something that came up was like, I got a golf. I got in on a tea time. Hit me up the next time you're here. And that is something that was like. For somebody who's very relationship driven. Yeah. There's another transaction shoved in your face. That's right. And so those things were, they would frustrate me, but the hurt would come. Okay, finally, we're, we're going to work on a case. I put maybe 30 hours of work into analyzing the data on this one case. We have sharpened an incredible solution. I've gotten all of the, the universe aligned to make this happen. And then when it comes down to it, the broker just, oh, I forgot, I forgot to present it to the client. We'll just keep it as is this year, but next year, you're my guy. And those things would just it'd be really frustrating. And I would leave my office and I would be defeated. And my wife could see that. And I could feel that. And I vented, you know, a lot openly with my best friend and being able to say, like, how do you deal with this? And the way you like you just push it down, you push it down, you push it down. But ultimately it just uh it's only so long you can do that. There's only so long I can do that. If your wife hadn't encouraged you to leave, would you still be doing that today? So here's the the tricky part. No, I would have been there longer than when I left. I would have stayed to do, learn more from that McKinsey opportunity. Then at the time that that would have ended, bonus day would have only been a month away. You're not going to leave right before bonus day. And then at that point, you're already four or five months into the new year. And so that cycle just continues. So for me, it was the right time to wish my team the very best, be grateful for all that I learned. And again, use that to be able to really bring me to where I am. And let's, let's go there. How did Sniffle come about? So Rich Blanton is uh, our CEO and, and my business partner. He got into telemedicine in 2011. So he's been around this for a long time. Rich is got a, a rich business background. He's had five startups, five exits, one company he took public. So he's seen the movie before. So it's really actually exhilarating for me to be able to sit shotgun and watch and learn from a person that's done on that level. 
it was just paying attention to telehealth, tried to make a, a bid to buy a Meridoc, lost out to Teladoc on that, but just stayed vigilant and observing and learning and understanding the good, the bad, and the challenging. And then in 2017, end of 17, he and another business partner started Sniffle. Started getting the tech all built out, knew that using AI was going to be a part of this, going to be a huge differentiator back then. Still is a pretty big differentiator today, but it's definitely, you know, very much in the in the known universe now. Everyone knows we're all looking for solutions around AI. I've got to imagine you guys are yeah, absolutely. deep in that. But if they were in 2017, if they had the foresight to make investments in that then, like people generally knew what AI was. It was kind of talked about more so in probably a scary sense, you know, there's Terminator. Exactly. But that was pretty, I mean, they were kind of a pioneer, I would say, if, if they were investing in it that early. They knew how to stitch together the right solution. So the architecture that the Stiffle platform is built on is service-oriented architecture. So it's not always about having to build everything from scratch. It's about what can you integrate with? What can you bolt on? You know this very well. And so in 2017 started, the company started going down a path, pandemic hits, refactor, and decide to use for high-scale COVID testing. Business was going a different direction, had uh, the wrong person in the wrong seat on the bus, that CTO was not the right person, insisted that everything had to be built from scratch as opposed to going and buying an existing telehealth platform and SOAing on top of it. This gentleman was like, nope. I'm going to build everything from scratch. This, honestly, you know, Rich can laugh about this, and this definitely, the red flag is, I can get the whole thing built in nine months for 150 grand. Okay. You and I both know, it's like, what is this person talking about? You cannot build from scratch this complex of a system. All the HIPAA, like, even just the, when I think about the compliance aspects alone. Yeah. That's probably well over that amount of time and money. Absolutely. You know, Going through and getting your SOC 2 compliance certification, that, that's a $50,000 process that takes multiple months on its own, minimum. So anyhow, just it wasn't the right time. So Rich stepped into the CEO role, started driving this process. I had met Rich two years prior before I came aboard through a, a mutual business contact. And I once he explained the, the business model of Sniffle, I immediately recognized that's a winner. Congratulations, like you're going to disrupt telehealth. Phenomenal. And we just stayed in touch and I was an admirer of what he's done in business and was hoping to be able to lean on him as a mentor to learn from him and other aspects. When I decided to make the separation from Sun, I called Rich and said, hey, I'm about to update my resume. I'd love any introductions you may know, any, anything that you think I could be a good fit for. I'd love for the, uh, the connection. He was like, don't update your resume. I'm ready for you now. Come join me. Great. So my last day at Sun was November 30th. And my first day at Sniffle was December 1st. And at that point, the organization was going through a pretty significant transformation. A very significant. So the previous CEO had stepped out, still involved with the business, but is doing another venture out on his own. There was a UI UX team that we had. So Sniffle owned a marketing agency for a period of time to help get all of the UI UX talent. So that, that team was there, but for the first six, seven months, it was just two guys in a coffee pot ideating on how do we bring this to market? What is the differentiator? How do we overcome this? Why is an employer group 
going to benefit this? How do we make this better for a physician so that she can really find joy in her practice again? Every day, just the two of us grinding away and then finally got to the point where it was time to start adding people to our team. We always had a development team based in Latin America. Had a, at one point, it was a 14-person development team. Now it's a, an eight-person development team solely dedicated to us. And then we started adding internal teammates to join us on our adventure. And now there's Rich, myself, four other folks that are on this mission with us, and then our eight-person development team. So maybe explain and elaborate a little bit more on what does Sniffle look like today? So Sniffle is an AI-driven virtual care platform. What we stand for is for better care in a bigger picture. So when I say better care, it's approaching and using AI and virtual care to give better care for physicians, clinicians, and patients. The idea of being a doctor isn't what it looks like on TV. Everyone's heard physician burnout. It's a real thing. There's the amount of people that are choosing to leave medicine or not pursue medicine is alarming. And selfishly, my wife for getting involved in this is the way that I lost my dad, but also the fact that I'm going to need healthcare for my mom down the line. And I know I'm going to need healthcare because I've got a family medical history of, of things. And I need healthcare to be around for my boys and my wife. And so if we don't help to navigate real changes, positive changes in the healthcare system, which is incredibly flawed and broken right now, we're going to continue to run more and more providers out of the workforce. And then we're all going to be stuck looking at each other saying, how do we let this happen? And so Sniffle is, is focused on how can we bring better care for a physician and that patient. And the bigger picture is about reinforcing the bond between a physician and her patients, about how do we really emphasize that continuity of care and relationship between two people is critically important. I'm a relationship guy. This is a big thing for me, that you go and see your doctor is an important thing, part of your healthcare journey. Telehealth, previously, random patients seeing random providers, it's not good for patients and it's not good for docs either. Docs getting paid 18 bucks a visit is not why they went to medical school and why they completed residency and why they've done it, fellowships, et cetera. And if they aren't seeing a patient for 18 bucks, Scott, how many patients do they have to see a day to make that possible? Well, and that's, it's transactional. Very transactional. And we're not here for that. That transactional care doesn't serve us long-term. So the concept is, the bigger picture is we have to reinforce the bond between physicians and their patients. We have to remind patients that yes, technology is amazing, but stop doing silly things like booking a teledoc appointment. Stop going to Costco and Walmart for your healthcare. I love Costco. I love Walmart. I'm not, that's not a knock on them. When I want seven cases of sparkling water, I go where to Costco. Where else are you going to go? There's one place. When I want 12 pounds of macadamia nuts, where else would you go? But for healthcare, the transaction of that is not the right way for it to be rendered. So we built a marketplace model. Sniffle for providers is the clinical and physician app. Sniffle for patients is the patient app. And the two sync up, you know, just like uh, the Uber driver and Uber rider apps would. But the difference where we really have applied a lot of our thinking, a lot of our energy, a lot of our capital 
is that if you're going to ask someone to download your app, you must give them remarkable value. Otherwise, they're going to download it and they're going to uninstall it within, I'm going to say, 48 hours. If an app doesn't do something for me pretty tremendous, I'll give it a day, probably not more than two, to see are they going to send me a push notification? Are they going to send me something that activates me to really see how to use this app? And if they don't do that, then you're gone. You've been removed from my my real estate of my mobile device. So for us, using AI and advanced tech is how we bring kind of these remarkable experiences to physicians and patients. There's a lot that we do in the app to be able to leverage AI, but it's always about making sure that you and your medical home, you and your physician, you and your provider can have easy connectivity and that real data can be shared and exchanged, not based on a Dr. Google search or a WebMD doom scroll that you remember the first time you brought your kid home? Yeah. Definitely. Like I, I remember being spooked about all sorts of things. We used to FaceTime our moms all the time. Is this normal? Is this okay? Get on WebMD. Oh, oh, I don't know. This is bad. This is bad. I think I think I broke them. Yep. And that's terrifying for new parents. Some of the feedback that we've gotten from physicians is they really don't like it when a patient comes in and tells them what they've got. I get that. I get that. I understand. I'm sure similarly when you walk in to assess a potential client's issues and they already tell you what all the issues are and exactly the solution that they need, you're the expert. Your team here at Ben, you guys need to be able to go through your proper discovery and assessment to provide the right diagnosis. And so I get why a physician wants that. But here's the thing, Doc, you can't take the internet back, right? Th that genie is never going back in that bottle. Horse is out of the barn. So if the reality is that a patient's always going to come back and ask or tell you, hey, this is what's going on with me, you can't stop that. But what we can do, what if we give them medically curated AI to help them make more informed and more accurate assessments and understanding of what's going on with them? So in our Sniffle for Patients app, we have a tool we've labeled our Iagnosis tool. So our stance to really emphasize to the physician community only you, a licensed medical provider, should give someone a diagnosis. But an iagnosis is an AI-rendered diagnosis. And our iagnosis tool is built on a machine learning protocol that has over 14 million patient visits that have been loaded into it. Here's where it becomes really powerful. When then you, Scott, put your family medical history and you put your lifestyle and then you put your chief complaint or your first symptom, the AI, if we both did that, and we both say we have a stomachache. The questions that the AI and the branching logic that's going to come for you is going to be different than me because of my family medical history, which makes this curated. And you're going to go through this questionnaire. And based on how you answer the questions, a set of differentials are going to come back or potential diagnoses. That return of those differentials has a 95% accuracy rating, which is incredible. Unlike the success in the insurance space where, you know, the opposite <laughs> is is doing well. That's right. So with a 95% accuracy rating to understand what's going on, you can make the right decision on what you should do next for yourself, for your wife, for your kids, for a loved one, a church member, whoever. The ability to have real visibility of what's going on in your health journey, I think is extremely powerful. And this this can help people on both sides of this pendulum that You've heard of hyperchondriacs. There are cyberchondriacs. 
that will. That's a new term. I hadn't heard that one. Yeah. Yeah. That's a, that's a thing. Okay. Hey, if, if WebMD is like your launch page, when you open your browser, you might be one. I think that's a safe assessment. I'm going to give that a 95% accuracy. <laughs> Those folks are freaking themselves out about everything, right? Every time their stomach hurts, it's an appendicitis. Every rash is stage seven something. Hey, let's not, let's bring your anxiety down. Let's bring your stress down. Let's use some medically curated AI to find out what's going on. On the opposite side of that spectrum are people that just dismiss everything. It's fine. Yeah, my stomach's been hurting for the last 10 days, but it's fine. I'll be okay. Well, you might be okay, but your appendix also might be about to explode. So let's not dismiss that. And if we can give people powerful tools and also the privacy to be able to do that, because maybe you know not everyone wants to be able to go disclose all these things to their physician right away. But if they could have visibility to what really is happening, then in the app, they can hit a button and schedule an appointment with their doctor, with their practice. Not the random guy getting 18 bucks a visit that right. you're never going to see again. That's right. And if your doctor isn't on the Sniffle platform, then you can hit another button, send an invite and say, hey, Dr. Scott, I want to start seeing you on Sniffle. Will you please check it out? But we're, we're trying to say to that physician, we've given robust tools here for your patient and we're trying to make sure that she doesn't go do something silly, like go to Costco or go to book some random retail healthcare appointment and leave your patient panel because that's not good for your practice. And while it's not good for your practice, it's really not good for her because now no one else is understanding all the other elements that you do because you've been seeing her as her physician for the last three, four, five, ten years, right? Continuity of care can make a huge impact in how you consider treatment plans. So in the Sniffle for Patients app, we've got the diagnosis tool. We then also have Sniffle RX card. It's four times more powerful than good RX. It'll save up to 85% on prescriptions. Our oldest boy is on a has a monthly medication. It used to cost us just under 50 bucks a month. We now get it for $8 a month. Wow. That's just one script. That's an incredible amount of money that people can have access to save. And in the app, you can put in the name of the drug, the dosage, the amount of times per day you need to take it in your zip code. And within as little as five miles, it'll bring up every single pharmacy in real time and show you exactly what they're selling the drug for. So you can say, no, Dr. Chris, don't send this to CVS. Send it to Tom Thumb because it's $37 cheaper there, which is insane that there can be that disparate of pricing within your community, but it's happening constantly all the time. I have a feature enhancement I'm just going to ask for now. If you can actually somehow tap into the inventory of these pharmacies, that would be huge because we've got some monthly medications in our family. And literally when we're getting it refilled one month at a time and the doctor says, please call and find the pharmacy that has it before I call in the script. And so anyway, if you could, if you could just streamline that, that would be awesome. We experienced the same thing, and I'm trying to figure out if there's a way to be able to have access to the inventory controls. But yeah, I understand that's definitely problematic because getting a script delivered somewhere for them to only say we're out doesn't... And we don't know when it's coming back we in. Have no idea when it's coming back in. Yeah, that is problematic. I'll add it to the list. All right. Well, there's a long list of, of things that are... I won't even ask for any royalties on that. Just, you know... Just your gift yeah, to humanity. Gift. Yes, yes. It's very kind. Yeah. I'll benefit from it at some point. Absolutely, you, know, I, you will. Yeah. Yeah. 
Um, so yeah, the Sniffle patient app is how we try to bring value through those things. On the physician side, there's AI tools in there to digitize the intake process. Rich, my business partner, before the pandemic, sent a survey out to 3,000 doctors. Got about 300 responses, which is actually astonishing. And the question was, why aren't you more interested in incorporating telehealth into your practice? And the top two reasons that came back were insurance payers don't want to reimburse for it, which all that's gone away and changed because the pandemic changed all of that for everyone. So that problem has been solved. But two, the administrative burden, it isn't worth it because I'm only going to get reimbursed on average somewhere between $65 to $75 for that virtual consult. But I got to chart it. I got to code it. I got to submit it. I got to make sure insurance doesn't much overhead. kick it back or they just lose it. Should it finally get approved, then I'm going to get my money somewhere between 90 to 180 days. The manual efforts involved in all of that you're spending 60 to 70% on, of the administrative cost to capture back 20 bucks, 30 bucks. So the juice wasn't worth the squeeze. What we've digitized inside the Sniffle for Providers app is we've eliminated a lot of that administrative burden using AI, using advanced tech. We're integrated with 800 payers and Medicare and Medicaid. So a patient can take a picture of her insurance card. In three seconds, I pull back all plan details. So you no longer have someone at the front office calling, saying, hi, I'm calling for to see if Chris Matthews' insurance is still eligible. Oh, we don't have a Chris Matthews. Oh, hey, Mr. Matthew, your insurance is ineligible. Okay, my last name is Matthew Wantino S. Oh, we didn't do that. Okay, so then the front office is calling, hey, Blue Cross, uh, it's Chris Matthew Wantino S. Oh, yeah, his insurance is eligible. That back and forth is still a very manual process in a majority of all physician offices still today. It blows me away that in 2024, that that's even a thing. Yeah. It's not going to be because we're here. We're going to roll this thing out. We're going to make that possible. And this, this idea of like, you know, people like thinking AI is going to take our jobs. Well, you're going to cut the front office staff. No, that's not what I want at all. I want you to repurpose that front office staff. I want that front office person to call me your patient and say, Hey, you had an appointment seven days ago. How are you feeling? Did you get all three of those? No, I only got one of them. I just figured, no, patient, I need you to get all three. Okay, let's get on the Sniffle RX card. Let's find out where we can get it the cheapest. I need you to get all three for this condition to really be taken care of. And if we can free people to do more of what I believe people got into healthcare to do, to heal people, to care for people, not to do administrative, insurance-driven BS. If we can free them from some of these administrative burdens that have been put upon them where they can really focus on the relationship of the care that they're rendering. I think we can help people find joy in medicine and keep them in medicine and recruit more people to want to say, I want to do this because I see the joy that this physician is having in her practice. And I want that for my life. It's a big ask, but it's worthy of the pursuit for sure. So you alluded to kind of the two-sided marketplace where you've got to have the, you know, the physicians and you've got to have the patients. And we've actually had a number of guests on who, who have similar models for Sniffle, which has been the bigger challenge. Has it been acquiring the patient side or the physician side? The physician side, for sure. Physicians have so much that's put upon them, right? So change fatigue is something that all of us in the professional worlds have to deal with. 
But the amount of compliance that doctors have got to go through, like think about the last time you went to a physician appointment, whether it was you or for one of your kids, how much time did the provider or the physician in the room get to just stand, be in the room with you, focused on you and not with a laptop in front of them, documenting everything because of all the administrative checks and the box checking they've got to do. Pretty limited. Yeah. That's problematic. So when physicians hear that we have invested over nearly $4 million into this platform, that I have solved the intake problem, I've integrated with all the insurance payers, I can verify your payment methods, and the patient comes to you diagnosed or pre-assessed, and I'm going to give you this world-class enterprise-level software that you can onboard yourself in less than 15 minutes, that you will be delivering prescriptions through in less than 24 hours, and that's backstopped with an integration we have with SureScripts and the DEA, that we've solved all of that, and I can give this to your practice. You can be onboarded in 15 minutes, delivering scripts in 24 hours for a total investment of $0. The biggest challenge I'm facing right now is it's too good to be true. There's no chance. We get taken advantage of all the time in the medical community. There is no chance this can be real. Or you've got some secret hidden egg in here that's going to go off and then you're going to hammer me with some sort of surprise pill. That's been really hard. When I share with them what our true intent is, is to say we have to take healthcare back from bad business models. I'm coming alongside you because I want you to make sure your patients don't do silly things when they get distracted by retail health. I need this to happen, sure, for your patients, but this is for me and my family. And it's part of my story with, you know, unfortunately, my dad. And he passed away when he shouldn't have because there wasn't the type of tools available like this and the kind of advocacy that could be available to prevent some of the things that happen. And listen, I'm a fan of the medical community. I'm here for the medical community. So this is not to anything to come at them with. It's to be able to say, if we can equip everyone, physicians and family members, with better tools, then we can all be more aware and proactive and advocate for our family members when they have these health interventions. So when when I share that, then people, you know, give it a look. The hardest thing to do is get people to recognize that we have a true intent, that our North Star is pure. And then, and I'm, again, radically transparent. If you're giving me, the doctor in the clinic, this platform for free, and you're not charging my patients, then where are you making money? In the app, for on the patient side, I sell a package of ancillary benefits, dental, vision, behavioral health, labs, and imaging. Sniffle benefit package is 15 bucks a month. And it covers for you, it'd be cover you and all five of you would be covered for 15 bucks a month. No waiting period, no out of network, no maximum. And these are really strong solutions. So like my, my dental partner is Aetna. Go to any of the 260,000 locations that accept the Aetna dental access schedule. You show them your sniffle app. If a normal cleaning is 75 bucks, you're getting it for 30. If all five of you need a crown, have at it. If all five of you want braces, have at it. Right? And that's not like most dental plants. Same thing with vision, same thing with behavioral health. So they're really robust, but we've, we've brought all this together and put it in this app. And that's where we make our money. At $15 a month for an individual and to cover that individual and their entire family, I believe we're offering an incredible value. You're an employer. Maybe you know 
what the cost is of the employee benefits here. You know for a fact there's no chance to employ or to offer benefits for an employee and family for dental and vision alone for 15 bucks a month. I think that the dental cost alone is like 50. So the too good to be true, man, that's that's going to be a really hard thing to to get through, I got to believe. But the other thing that comes to mind for me, I don't know what the landscape is like throughout the rest of the country, but being here in North Texas, it really seems like there are very few medical practices that aren't part of some much larger network. And the Baylor Scott and White office that's in my suburb of, of Dallas, that decision to take on an app like that, that doesn't seem like it's going to be a localized decision. It's going to be something that Baylor Scott and White or Texas Health or you know, insert large healthcare system, it's going to be their, their call. So is the way that you win to find those physicians that are still independent? It's a great call out. And the answer is yes. The low-hanging fruit, as the term goes sometimes, is is independent physicians because they're fighting fiercely to stay independent. There's this pendulum thing that happens, I'm going to just, for discussion's sake, say every 10 to 15 years. The big hospital systems go out and buy every private practice. So now Dr. Scott and Dr. Chris work for Baylor. Well, now we don't have to be crushing ourselves to see 40 patients a day. They bought the practice. We got a little coin in our pocket. They put us on salary. So now you think 20 patients a day is plenty. And I'm like, yeah, I'm good with that. Well, then all of a sudden the practice isn't generating the revenue that it used to. And we're not getting, and it's not paying off in the number of referrals that are supposed to be going to the mothership, which is why big hospital systems buy these practices to get the referrals for the surgeries and all the other things. So then at some point they come back and say, this isn't worth it. We'll sell the practice back to you. And we're like, okay, for pennies on the dollar. Great. We'll, d- we'll do the deal. Still our practice. Like it's the same building. It's the same staff. It's you and me. Just changing the sign on the door. We're just changing the sign on the door. Well, now we're going to, we're going to crank it back up to 40 patients a day. And then we'll wait for the next wave of things that that's been going on. And I've seen that happen at least three times in my healthcare recruiting days. So which cycle are we entering into right now? There's still a lot of acquisition. The, the thing that's different and unique now is there's a lot of PE and VC firms, mainly PE firms, that are acquiring practices left and right. And it's because, again, being a brilliant physician and a brilliant business person is a lot to ask of someone. And so a lot of them are just saying, I just, it's not worth it. So I'm either going to have to sell this off to someone or just quit the profession. And I've invested way too much into this to leave the, you know, the profession of medicine. So a lot of them are selling it off. But there are independent physicians out there that are looking for these types of solutions. And those aren't the groups that people are bringing multi-million dollar platforms to and saying, I will not only implement this to you for $0, we own a marketing agency. If you're open to it, I will bring you new patients. I will launch campaigns to say, Grapevine Family Medicine is accepting new patients. Dr. Scott would love to see you virtually via Sniffle. Sure, I'm plugging Sniffle in there, but I'm also helping people hopefully find a new medical home and and grow your practice. You know, I I think the Pareto principle absolutely applies here. I think 80% of physicians out there are trying to get by. The beating of being a doctor and all of the other things, it's a lot. 
But I do believe that 20% are out there saying we want to grow. We want to find a way to use technology and to reach more people and to serve more people. The brilliant thing about virtual care, this is another concept that we're really trying to put a lot of education around. Again, in this hypothetical scenario that we're both physicians, by the way, congratulations, Dr. Scott. <laughs> it's amazing. Yeah. Just, you, you showed up and, and I got an MD behind my name. Amazing. We're licensed in Texas, which means we can treat patients anywhere in Texas. Now, I'm not foolish enough to think that virtual care can do all things for all people, but it can do a lot for a lot of people, especially in places where there are healthcare deserts. So what if we launch a digital marketing campaign in Midland or Brownwood or El Paso or Corpus, and we hire a bilingual provider to join us, and we can now start providing health equity and access to people don't have the ability to pay for the incredibly expensive health insurance that exists today, but maybe for a virtual visit, they could, right? And now all of a sudden, it's not about people being able to drive into our parking lot. It's about the fact that we are licensed in the state of Texas, so we can treat people from the panhandle to the South Coast. And that can give a practice the opportunity to really grow exponentially without having to grow their physical footprint and generate revenue. And if they're generating more revenue, they're impacting more people, and hopefully they're finding more joy in their their everyday practice. I love what y'all are doing. I love the mission. And more importantly, I love the heart behind it. You know, so often it's not just the what, but it's the why. And and you clearly have some very personal motivations and drivers for for what you're doing. I want to dig more into the startup life and and the challenges. And you shared a funny story about when the app launched. I don't know if we want to tell that one or not, but like, what have been some of the, the biggest challenges and surprises that you guys have faced? <laughs> yeah, there's, um, for, for your listeners, if you, if you Google Sniffle, there's more than just an AI-driven virtual care platform out there, which I had no idea about. Not even remotely related. Zero relation. Yeah. We won't spoil the surprise. Yeah. I look forward to them letting you know what they found. <laughs> Um, so yeah, that was a surprise. You know, the, the other thing is, I'm curious to get your take on this growing uh, any startup, you need to be solving a problem that's worthy of solving. You need to be, have a, a real differentiated approach. So you're not just another vanilla ice cream vendor and you got to be able to really connect with it and like have purpose and passion behind that. So it can drive you through all of the challenging times, like when that other company website pops up and you're like, oh my gosh, what are we going to do? Those things I think are absolute requirements and ingredients. The hard thing is finding the right squad of people that want to believe in what you believe and see the world that the way that you want to see it, that want to see the world the same way that you see it. And, and this isn't about people having to be completely like-minded and single thought, but it's that they're missional. They're believers and they say, I want to contribute to that improved world. I, I was fortunate to go through this Simon Sinek workshop. And my why is to boldly connect with people so that we can contribute to an improved world. I try to actively live that. Very evident in my business and how we do what we do. So in the interview process, when we find people like, what I know I'm going to do a better job is being more specific about that. That's the hardest part for me is finding people that can believe in that and want to believe in that and contribute more 
and it's hard to find people that that you want to pour into that you know also are willing to be poured into and and want to be able to to have that but also align with what your vision is yeah one of our goals at at my firm is we want a candidate to be sold on our company before they even get to their first interview and we actually had three interviews yesterday and a couple more earlier in the week. And I'm going to say that 90 plus percent of them were, were there and you're right. Like there's the mission aspect. You've got to, you've got to be aligned with the mission and you've also got to be talking to people that have the the skills that you need for, you know, whatever these, these positions are, but I may be naive, but I think that culture is something that can overcome so much. And for example, Zappos is a company I've, I've admired for a long time and kind of their mentality is we're in the customer service business. We just happen to sell shoes. Yeah. And, you know, for us, we're in the automation business, but, you know, we go about how we operate with our, our team that my hope is that if we did something completely different, that they'd be on board with that too, because of the culture, because of how we treat them, because of how we value our people. Yeah. Zappos is an, I mean, incredible organization. Have you ever been to Vegas and toured? I'm actually going to be there next week for a conference. And man, if I could slip away and do their their thing, I would do that in a heartbeat. So for our listeners, Zappos has, I don't it's not like the academy or they've got a program where if you want to come in from the outside and learn the Zappos way of doing business, they've got a program for you. And so if you're ever in Vegas and you can tack on a, a day to your conference or whatever you're out there for, I would recommend it, even though I haven't been. It's on my business bucket list yeah. to do. I also haven't been, but I know people that have, and it's the real deal. So I hope you'll get a chance to fill your cup with granting yourself that bucket list wish. That's really impressive. That's really impressive. If you if you can get ninety percent of your candidates to to be already wanting the job upon showing up for their first interview, then you you guys are doing lots of the right things. One of the things that if you ask my team what Scott's three questions. They'll roll their eyes first. Here we go. Here's Scott's three questions. And it's, can they do the job? Do they want the job or do they want a job? And and I, I'm going to swap out job and company, use those interchangeably there. And the third is, is this somebody I want to have a beer with? In the example of this week, I think almost every single person, almost the first thing out of their mouth was something to the effect of, I want to work here. And so anyway, we're getting away from you. This is about you. Looking back, you're a couple years into this. What would you do differently? I would enlist more patients and recognize that although, okay, so I was in, I was in healthcare startups, but healthcare staffing startups, not all startups are equal. When you're in med tech and you're dealing with actual physicians delivering patient data, the amount of additional compliance and complication of all the data is significant. And I, I didn't have the proper respect for what that process entails and requires. So more patience for that. And the thing that I would, I'm starting to go through this right now. There's, there's a book called Traction. I feel like you know. Big, big, big fan. Check out our episode, our toolbox episode with Kurt Swindoll, and he will unpack Traction and the US model for you. Great. I can't wait. I just started listening to the book, realizing well, this is going to uncover some ugly truths and this is going to be a little painful, but I think this process is going to be really worthy so that everyone has 
radical transparency to what we're we're doing. And everyone's held accountable. And when you said, I definitely thought you knew traction because I, I use this framework now and I've been asking myself constantly, like, do, do you get it? Do you want it? Do you have the capacity? GWC. And those th- three things are so simple, but also really create alignment for people. So if I could grant myself a wish and a wand, I would go back a little bit in time and I would have started this EOS process sooner so that I could have been using that up until this point. You know, the good news for us is we've just gone live. We're, we're live with 10 clinics and about 85 providers, about 100,000 patients. That's still really early. And so I, there's still plenty of time for me. I'm going to have to scramble and I really can't wait to listen to this episode to see what the timeline looks like to implement an EOS process and to do it well and to do it thoughtfully. That's the other thing is to, to be more thoughtful about what we're thinking through. Because what I'm thinking through is not only am I trying to prevent a situation like I went through for a family member, but I'm also trying to think about how do I take the time to be more, more thoughtful for that physician? How do I take the time to be more thoughtful for an administrator who's got a really tough job of being a physician liaison, a patient liaison, and has to navigate the entire insurance complex? And if we could take more time to be more thoughtful about how we're trying to apply our solution to problems that they face, that I think would allow us to go further faster. You know, we've we designed our platform to be digitally deployed. So once we really start creating momentum, it's going to be hard to be able to slow it, which is great. I mean, that's that's not anything I'm complaining about. But once it starts really moving quickly, the time to be able to to pause and think and tinker and is going to be hard, at least harder. You mentioned you've got you've talked about your business partner. I don't have a partner in my business. Other guests have other some guests haven't. What are some things that you think have made your relationship, your working relationship with your partner successful? So I'm fortunate to have, you know, I'm chief growth officer here at Sniffle and Rich and I are doing this. I'm also a partner and co-founder at a digital marketing agency called Valiant Digital. My business partner there is Dan. With Dan, we have like a very much a brotherhood, you know, he's like a brother to me. So there's a lot of trust there. But the thing that really allows our partnership to flourish is I've never met someone more curious in my life. He is always tinkering, but he also loves what he does so much that no one has to a- ever ask him. You don't ask the boss. You know, if you're going to run an organization, you've got to have some of that drive already. But his downtime, his nights, his weekends, his holidays, he's looking at new platforms. He's testing things. He's because he's just curious to say, what if? And one of the great things that that I've gotten to experience by watching him is we bring these other digital marketing creatives in and they build an ad. And he says, okay, build an ad in front of me. And Dan starts questioning their process and starts saying, well, why not do this? Why not do that? Why aren't you considering this? And a lot of these candidates would say, you can't do that. And Dan's response is, why? Who said you can't? Well, that goes against what the how I was taught, the practices. Okay, well, let me show you why this thinking pattern applied in this way can generate a result 10 times faster. And they see this and I see the light bulb. You know, I'm not a digital marketer, but I see their light bulb go off and I think, wow, that is incredible that his curiosity is now going to be able to guide and mentor these people to be 
five times better and five times more aware and knowledgeable and skilled at what they do. And that is a really cool thing to be able to contribute to and see that, you know, in whatever capacities I, I help in the organization, that Dan gets to do that for them, which then trickles down to our, all of those clients having incredible results with their digital marketing campaigns and happy customers taking care of their customers and their employees and those lives and those communities. And that ripple effect keeps going. And with Rich, he has a, a pure heart about why he wants to do this. The membership models and, and the randomness of healthcare previously is just not something that sits well with him. And he's a guy who's seen the movie before. And so for me, it's really powerful because I, I've never had negotiated talks when we're talking about Series A and Series B funding and the numbers that are being thrown around. It's uncomfortable for me sometimes when I talk about you know, the valuation that we're planning on having in a three-year window because this isn't part of the world that I have been in. But from Rich, what I've learned is stand tall and be, be proud of the fact that that is what we're going to be doing, that this is our opportunity, that we are going to bring this to people. And in exchange, by doing good for others, we, we too will, will benefit from that. And that's really powerful. Learning things, watching him navigate high stakes discussions with high brass law firms and institutional investors. And, and that process is energizing for me, but it's also a huge learning opportunity, which has been really cool. Finding people that have experience that you don't and skills that you don't, I think is so critical. And in fact, we're, our leadership team doesn't know this yet, but we're about to go through an exercise where I'm going to have all of them go through something called Clifton Strengths Finders. And one of the things I'm really curious to see is, okay, I've got my top 10 and I know my bottom 10, right? These are the areas where I'm, I'm pretty weak. I'm really curious to layer us all side by side and see, hey, do we complete the puzzle together or are there still some gaps that we're, that we're missing? And the other thing that strikes me in, in what you're talking about is that one of the most common pieces of advice that we get is find a mentor. And I don't know that that's really your relationship there, but it's that person, like you said, he's seen the movie, he can guide, he can, he can provide, you know, caution, you know, Hey, don't do this, do this. Are you thinking about this, Chris? And I think that those are so key. I totally agree. And what I'm grateful to Rich for is he does it in a very graceful way. One of the things that I've learned from him, and this is a, a phrase I use often, if we get, decide that we're going to give you the responsibility for something, we're also going to give you the authority to have the full responsibility. So you're not going to see us come in and micromanage on top of you. If this is your responsibility, great. It's now yours. Do you accept it? Do you own it? If you say yes, then you have the authority. And if you come to us and say, I have to have A, B, and C to make this happen, well, then I, my role, I got to go get you A, B, and C. That framework is really powerful because it's empowering to other people. The team that we've hired on with us they now know that and they bring that up to me. Hey, listen, Chris, if I'm responsible for this, that means I have the authority for it. Correct? That's correct. Well, then in that case, I need the budget to do A, B, and C, and I can't skimp on it. Okay, we'll make it work then. And that confidence that they get to portray, I know makes them excited about what they're doing. 
But it also makes me excited because I'm like, here's a person that is so certain. And that's a term that I really like, certain. Are, you cer- are we certain about this? I'm not sure. Well, then we should measure again. We should think about this a little bit more. Because we get one chance to be certain. And if, if we're certain, and they're certain about it, and they're saying, I'm certain, we need this, okay. And that gives me excitement because I love having expertise around me. And the fact that I get to have expertise as teammates and experts as teammates, what a fortunate position for me to be in. And I, I'm learning from them while they're executing their plans, which is a really cool experience. And I'm that's something I, I've got to imagine you've seen firsthand too. Yeah, w- without a doubt. Man, what you just described, that's that's bold. And that takes a lot of courage to say if you're if you're responsible, then you need to tell me what you need and I gotta figure out how to get it to you. Yeah, listen, <laughs> Scott, don't get me wrong. It can backfire. It can backfire, but if you can be certain about the people that you say come aboard, you remember the book Good to Great, Jim Collins. Get the right people in the right seats on the bus. If you can be confident that this is the right person and you're bringing them on in the right seats. Now, I will tell you, I'm sometimes not as slow of a hirer as I should be. And that's that's come back on me a couple of times. So I'm still learning, you know, and reminding myself like, hey, do this more methodically and structured and intentionally. But ultimately, if we say this is the right person, then I have to trust that they're the right person. Because the thing is, I'm not just a coach. I'm, I'm a player coach. So I'm actively, I've got my own initiatives and I'm spinning my own plates, driving, trying to drive revenue and grow the company and look at strategic partnerships and collaborations and capital raising. I'm learning from Rich. At some point, Rich will move to a chairman role and I'll step into the, to that role. So there's there's an opportunity that I you know I need to be focused on listening and learning and watching how this process goes. So being able to have someone and say I trust your expertise, you go get it done because I've got my own things I need to also be doing, and together, our one plus one equals seven. And then you add another teammate, and then all of a sudden one plus one plus one equals nineteen, and we start doing that exponentially. We just keep holding each other accountable. And I think, again, framework like EOS will help us be even more accountable and more transparent. But yeah, it is, don't get me wrong, it comes with some stressful nights. There are definitely lots of times where I I have a hard time turning the brain off. I wake up really early and there's no going back to bed. And so it's just, let's get up and let's get to it, which I know is not necessarily always a good thing, right? I need to find a way to trust Trust, but verify, but just trust and and release. I think about where you are today. You've got this incredible opportunity in front of you. You are passionate about the kind of work that you're doing. You've, you've got this very, very well thought out product that you're bringing to market. You've got capital. You're, you're empowering people. You're empowered. I want you to think back to that three days in Wichita and the Hojo what would you tell yourself then, looking back from where you're at right now? Stay open. Just don't close yourself off. And I think that's really been the thing that I have, that's allowed me to kind of thrive throughout the different roles that I've had. I don't always approach everything. Listen, I, I can be a know-it-all because I feel like I, I've experienced lots of 
I've had so much failure that I know how to accelerate past the failure now and not necessarily always get to the win, but I definitely know how to get around the failures on my way to the win. So sometimes that isn't necessarily a great thing, but I I try to be open. I really enjoy engaging with other people and being open to listen and learn from them because I'm absolutely certain there's a lot that I can learn from you and from your team and the next person I sit at a coffee shop with next to and say, hey, howdy, how you doing? I just, I'm open to that idea. So that openness um, has served me well. So I would remind myself back then, while you are definitely mad and lots of curse, a lot of cursing going on, <laughs> it would say, take a deep breath. Start doing yoga. It, it will help you, young Chris. And just keep open. What's next? What's next is we really have finalized our go-to market here at Sniffle. I'm really excited about the way in which we're going to bring this to the marketplace. In the next nine months, we'll be pursuing our Series A, which is a wild experience for me. All the preparation that's needed for that. And then within 12 months of that, we'll be pursuing our Series B, which is another wild thing. But we're really, I'm feeling very fortunate. We have an incredible law firm based in Silicon Valley in New York that arguably the top one or two uh, law firms for Series A and Series B transactions. So to have them as our shepherd on this is an incredibly fortunate thing. But right now, it's for me, it's all about, on the business side, it's all about adoption and trying to get the word out and showing people what our real intentions are. And the easiest way for me to do that is not necessarily to always talk. It's to say, download the app and see for yourself, right? Everything that I've, I've talked about today about what we do, it's all laid out in the app. So you'll know what our intentions are if you go and look at the app. If you interact with the app, if you lean on the app and it, it holds up for you, then you'll know why we're doing what we're doing. So professionally, that's that's what I'm focused on. Wanting to grow a great team, really excited about trying to go through this process of EOS. And personally, it's, you know, one of the things that my wife and I are really trying to do a better job of this year is to do more experiential things with our family. So we're taking our first family vacation, just the four of us. We've never done this before. We're going to Puerto Rico in March. And it's amazing. Okay. Can I tell a quick tangent? Yeah. My boys won't listen to this until they're way older, but when they were much younger, the boys are nine and seven now, when they were much younger. I convinced them, I came up with a tale that I used to be the king of sea turtles and that I lived in the Indian Ocean off the southern tip of India, where my family comes from. And that one time I caught a jet stream that brought me all the way to Florida. And that's a pretty tall tale. I can be in a very elaborate. I, I, I'm. I believe that tale teller. Um, so I caught a jet stream and I told them all about the jet stream and all the adventures along the way. And I saw their mother on the beach, and I decided I'm going to give up the kingdom. I'm going to find that girl. I'm going to marry her, and we're going to have a family. And the boys early on were like, "Is that why you're so good in the pool?" <laughs> and I'm like, "Clearly, clearly, <laughs> that's awesome." And then on a few trips that we've gone to Galveston. There was a time where it was a pelican, right? Hey, Dad, do you know do you know that pelican? And I go, caw, 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 right? And the bird looks back and, 
oh, <laughs> this, uh, this is real? I'm like, of, co- of course it's real, right? So my oldest is pretty much like he's done with it, but my youngest still entertains it every now and then. So one of the things that, one of our adventures that we have in Puerto Rico is we're going to go swimming with sea turtles. And my youngest is like, we're going to get to meet so many of our family members. And I'm like, yeah, that's right. I really hope you like pack a crown in your in your suitcase and you wear that when you get in the in the. It's water. gonna be. I gotta find a, some way to bring this together. But yeah, so that's that's personal. That's something we're doing is trying to create more experiences. My boys have really gotten into fishing, so try to go on some fishing trips and do things that, as you know, like so cliche. Being a parent, it's so cliche, but the days are long and the years are super fast, and. While we are together, I want to, you know, plant those seeds and plant those memories as much as I can. So that's that's what's next for us, at least coming up the next couple of months. Man, I've thoroughly enjoyed every bit of this. I think we could probably talk for two more hours and still have lots more to say. But man, I just want to encourage you keep that passion and, and keep doing what you're doing. And I I can't wait to see where this goes for you. I appreciate it very much. We get to do hard things. You do hard things here for your people. I'm going to do hard things for lots of people. And it's a privilege to be able to do that. So thanks for letting me share some of this with you. Thanks for sharing. Appreciate it, Chris. Yeah. That was Chris Matthew, Chief Growth Officer of Sniffle. To learn more, visit sniffle.com. If you or a founder you know would like to be a guest on In the Thick of It, email us at intro at founderstory.us.